seeking the Lord's blessing, we'll turn to the first part of Scripture we read, 2 Kings chapter 2. Read again at verse 11, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. There appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now in turning to look at the ascension of Elijah, I'm conscious that we've passed by one or two incidents in his life. I've done that deliberately because these incidents don't, I think, focus particularly on Elijah, but rather on some other characters connected with those incidents. And... For that reason, primarily, I want to pass by and to move on to this last great incident in Elijah's life when he departs this life and when he ascends by a chariot of fire into heaven. Now, this occurs approximately ten years, perhaps a little less than ten years, after his flight and his restoration, which we looked at last week when he left his post and when he was restored by the grace and by the power of God. And in those intervening ten years, Elijah continued to carry out what God asked him to do. His immediate act after being restored by God was to anoint his own successor, and he did that in all humility and with gladness of heart. He anointed Elisha, the son of Shaphat in Abel Maholah, He anointed him by putting his own mantle on him. Elisha knew immediately what that meant, and he left the twelve yoke of oxen. He burnt them, and he said farewell to his former life, and he went and he followed Elijah, ready to be his successor in the prophetic office. And I suppose you could ask, well, what exactly did they do for those ten years in between Elijah's restoration and his ascension into heaven? Well, one thing you can say clearly is this, and it comes out very clearly in this chapter here. They seem to have spent a lot of their time teaching and instructing the sons of the prophets who were gathered in the schools of the sons of the prophets. Now, what were they? (coughs) Well, they were essentially just schools or colleges of learning where those who were to be prophets or ministers of the word, that is essentially what a prophet was, a prophet was an expounder of the word of God, where they learned how to expound the word of God. They were taught and instructed there by a great prophet like Elijah or Elisha, and there they learned how to preach the gospel themselves. Now, I suppose you could ask the question, where did they spring from? Or where were they over the last few years when idolatry was raging and rampant all over Israel? Well, it's possible that they just sprang up in these ten years since Elijah was restored, since he left Mount Sinai 
and made his way back to his post. And I say that for this reason. It's possible that the contest on Mount Carmel, when God sent fire down upon the altar, it's possible that that contest had more effect upon the children of Israel than Elijah first realized. He ran south because he thought that nobody had listened, nobody had taken notice, and nobody had heard. But perhaps he was too quick to assume that. After all, the Lord said to him at Mount Sinai, Yet I have reserved to myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, nor kissed him. I suppose Elijah could have asked, Where are they? But he has hardly made his way back when there are signs of them stirring. They have begun to waken up. And it would seem to be the case that out of those 7,000, some have felt the call of God, and God has indeed called and urged them and called them to go and to learn the scriptures and to preach and to expound them, because God is still to do a work in Israel. And that is one thing surely to gladden and encourage the heart of Elijah when he makes his way back up north, that he finds that those people are there. And so quickly these schools are built up and they are established, or I should say rebuilt and reestablished, because they had functioned before. You find them in the books of Samuel in the Old Testament. They were in Ramah, and they were in Ramoth Gilead, uh, or in Kiriath Yaram. There were schools there, and Samuel used to go from one school to another to teach the sons of the prophets, so that they in turn could teach in the synagogues, that they could preach the gospel from week to week. Now these schools clearly in the apostasy had fallen into disuse, but Elijah sees some of the fruit of Mount Carmel, a small stirring, the size of a cloud, perhaps the size of a man's hand, and these schools are re-established. There is one at Gilgal, there is one at Bethel, and there is one at Jericho. Now that is the way, my friend, that the Lord always works. The Lord always promotes his own work through the ministry of those whom he has called and equipped and asked to preach. The priests were like that. They taught one another. And they did their work full time. The sons of the prophets were like that. They dedicated themselves to the word and to prayer, to the prophetic office. And they were taught and diligently instructed. The apostles were like that. They spent three years with the Lord. And then they dedicated themselves to the word of God and to prayer. And so should the ministry of the gospel still be like that. It should consist of people who, like Elisha, have burnt the oxen and the yokes. When Elisha burnt them, it wasn't just to give a meal to the people who were with him. He burnt them in the sense of burning his bridges. He said, not only am I leaving it, I'm not going back to it. I am finished with earning my livelihood like this, and I will from now on follow the people of God, and I will live from the tithe of the people of God. He gave himself wholly, completely, and wholeheartedly to the ministry of the gospel. His whole life would be consumed by the word of God and by prayer. And when the church loses that, the church loses everything. And the church goes down. And there are many periods, and we live in one just now, when the emphasis is taken off that. Oh, it's not necessary to know any Greek or Hebrew. Or it's not necessary to spend all that time in college. Or it's not necessary to be in the Bible all the time. What you need is to get out and about. Don't give so much time to the reading of commentaries or the reading of scriptures or prayer. That's not really as important. And we live in an age where the emphasis is right off that. 
And the idea prevails in many people's minds that all you need to preach the gospel is just to take a Bible in one hand and some kind of DIY book in the other hand that tells you a little bit about how to counsel and the gift of the gab and off you go and do it in your own strength. Not so. Not so the preaching of the gospel. My friends, a cheap ministry will kill a church stone dead. Make no mistake about that. A cheap ministry will kill a church stone dead. Pray to God, every one of you and me with you, for people whom God has called, for people whom God has equipped, for people whom God has taught beside Cherith and in Sarephath. People who have been anointed by God to bring the word to people so that the flock perish not. Woe to you, shepherds, God says in Ezekiel 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23. You shepherds who feed yourselves and do not feed the flock of God. You will know a shepherd of God by his feeding of your soul. The church of God knows when the ministry is cheapened. The people of God know when the ministry is cheapened. You pray and go on your knees earnestly that the Lord restore to our church and to every church ministers of the gospel. We need them, my friend. We need them. We need to hear the voice of God with the power of God and with the unction of God. That is what we need more than anything else. Now, in many ways, I think perhaps you could look at this as the still small voice as well. You'll remember that we saw that the Lord passed by in a fire. He passed by in an earthquake. But then he spoke in the still small voice. And Elijah covered his face because the still small voice was full of the presence of God. As though God is saying, I will work my way quietly. And I wonder if this is it through the schools of the prophets itself. May this not have been Elijah's own understanding. When he sees people here and there called and equipped, he says, it's the still small voice. I will teach them and they will teach others. And God will do great things through them. I don't know who was in the schools of the prophets. It's quite possible that some of these later prophets, like Isaiah or Hosea, or some of those may have been young people in the schools when Elijah and Elijah were teaching. Certainly God works great things by the still small voice. And that is our prayer today. That in your own hearts and in the hearts of others, God this Holy Spirit would apply the Scriptures to you, searing into your heart like a still, small voice, showing you the way of life and urging you and enabling you to repent and to believe in the Gospel. So that is how he and Elisha spent those ten years of their lives and how pleasant we believe those ten years were. But then the day of Elijah's departure comes. A day when he himself will enter into his rest and leave his labors behind. And I want to look with you at the way he prepares for it. Secondly, the event itself is being raised in a chariot, or I should say being raised in a whirlwind. And then thirdly, the immediate aftermath of that event. Now let's take first the preparation for it. And in the chapter, we find no account whatsoever of what Elijah's own thoughts 
and his own feelings are with respect to that day. He knows for certain that his time has come to leave the world. You'll notice in verse 9, that comes through clearly. It came to pass when they were gone over the Jordan that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. So Elijah knows, and he knew, I think for some time, that this was the day of his departure, that it was at hand. He knows it, but we don't have much idea of what passed through his mind. I'm sure like any saint who would be told that today is the day of your death or the day of your translation, I'm sure he would think back and recall moments in his life, his triumphs and his failures, the exaltations and the dejections, the successes and the failures. I'm sure he would have cast his mind back over his whole prophetic life and his whole life as a believer, but none of that comes to the fore at all. There's no trace of pride here. There's no great resuming of what I have done and what I have said. He doesn't go over any of that. In fact, in the chapter, there's a distinct reserve about Elijah. He is keeping himself to himself. And when the sons of the prophets want to speak about the fact that Elijah is going away, they don't speak to Elijah himself about it. They go to Elisha. And they do that in Bethel, in Gilgal, and in Jericho. Each time the sons of the prophets come and they say to Elisha, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And even Elisha himself is reserved about it. He says, yes, I know it. He says, hold your peace. Be quiet. I do not wish, he says, to speak about it. And it seems as though my master himself has cast a holy reserve over it. And he does not wish to speak about that. So Elijah is in a sense in silence over what awaits him. And so we have no idea except to believe that he is making ready in his own heart, that he is praying, that he is preparing, and he is making ready to meet his God. But let me say, my friends, at the same time that I have no doubt that there's this in his heart. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. Uh, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me. I have no doubt concerning that. He knows in whom he has believed. He has left his affairs a long time ago in his hand, and he goes about his business here as one who is ready to appear before his maker. But notice this. Elijah is more ready and more concerned to prepare others than to prepare himself. It reminds us in that respect of Christ himself. Even when he goes to the cross, his heart is with others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Elijah's own heart is consumed with the church itself, with his servant Elisha, and with the sons of the prophets. And he spends the last day of his life preparing them and preparing Elisha. Now let's look at these two preparations. First of all, the preparation of the sons of the prophets, but then especially the preparation of Elisha. Now first of all, the sons of the prophets. You'll notice that he begins a circuit, and he must have begun it very early in the morning. He begins at Gilgal, (coughs) and he travels a distance of eight miles. Now remember, this is in one day. He travels from the school of the prophets in Gilgal eight miles to the school of the prophets in Bethel, 
He then travels 14 miles to the school of the prophets in Jericho, and he then travels another five miles to cross the river Jordan along with Elisha. So nearly 30 miles they walk that day. And that is not taking into consideration the sheer labor of exhorting and encouraging the prophets of God to go about their work, to do it properly, to do it zealously, and to make sure they do it throughout the whole of Israel. In other words, the concern and the care of this man is for the church of God. And is that not a mark of the true prophet? Is it not a mark of a Christian? Is it not a mark of your own heart that the care of the church lies upon you? Of course, it lay heavily on, heavily on Paul. Paul said that besides everything else, he says, besides the famines and besides the scourging and the stoning and everything, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. But is that not upon yourself? Do you not feel a sense of responsibility for the cause of God? Do you not feel as though you would put out your hand to stop the ark itself from trembling? Do you not pray over it? Do you not weep over it? Do you not mourn over it? That was a mark of grace in Elijah's heart. He spent his last hours laboring for it, exhorting for it, longing to see it revive and longing to see its power spread all throughout Israel. But then notice how he prepares Elisha. Now, my friends, Elisha was like a son to him for ten years. We have no record of Elijah's family at all. This man was, was his son. For ten years he lived with him, he ate with him, he drank with him, he taught him, he patiently encouraged him, he exhorted him. And for, for his part, Elijah was like a father to Elisha. He, eight years before, or perhaps ten years before, had left his own father and mother and left a very wealthy family in Abel Mahola. And he had gone, and during that time, Elijah was his father. He looked to Elijah for everything. He trusted Elijah, and he loved Elijah. This is Christian fellowship. This is a union of spirit. This is one man sharing with another. This is something that the world cannot enter into. The Christian himself knows it, because all the Lord's people will meet other of the Lord's people with whom they can identify just like this, with whom they can walk and with whom they can share, and through whom and by whom they are blessed. And that was the kind of close, loving fellowship that Elijah had with Elisha. But you'll notice here that Elijah tests him twice. Uh, my friend, Elijah has been through fire and water, and he knows that Elisha will go through fire and water, so he tests him twice. And he tests him first in this way. Verse 2, <clears throat> And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And you'll notice he does the same in verse 4, And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. You'll notice he does the same in verse 6. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. Now why does Elijah ask Elisha to wait that he wishes to go on further? Is it because he feels that the parting is too sore? That the parting will either hurt himself or hurt Elisha too much? No, I don't think so. 
surely the three times itself perhaps encourages us to think more in terms of it being a test, a threefold temptation or a threefold testing. Wait here and stay here. I will go on and I will finish my course and finish my ministry alone. Is there a test in there? I think so. What is the nature of the test precisely? Well, I think it's this. Elisha, do you still wish to follow me? Do you still wish to come with me and to come with me to that place where my mantle will fall upon you? Do you wish to come with me to that place where I am taken away from you and where you must assume every single responsibility that I have assumed up till now? Eight years ago you took that mantle and you were glad to take it. You left the plough and you left the oxen. And you went and you put your hand to the gospel plough and you put your hand to it wholeheartedly and you followed me wholeheartedly. Eight years later, is it still the same? Or have the trials discouraged you? Or have the difficulties perhaps dissuaded you from following me or from persevering with me right to the end? Is that not the essence of what Elijah is putting to Elisha? You have put your hand to the plough eight years later Are you looking back? Is that not the question? What an urgent question it is. Not only to every minister of the gospel, but to every single Christian. Perhaps it was easy enough for you to begin, but the way became hard, and you had to ascend hill difficulty. And the Lord says to you tonight, Will ye also go away? Will you also go away? Do you still wish to follow me? And do you still wish to persevere with me. What does Elisha say to him? He says, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. No, he says, I began, and I will continue, and I will finish. I will go with you, where you lodge, I will lodge. And in fact, that's relevant in more ways than one, because the whole thing reminds us, in a sense, of Naomi saying to Ruth, Go back. Go back to your own people. But Ruth says, no, your people, my people, where you lodge, I will lodge. I in Moab, Ruth says, have cast in my lot with you, so I will follow you to Israel. Elisha is doing the same. I began, I must continue, and I will finish. Because I fear that if I take my hand off the plough, I am not fit for the kingdom of God. And is that not a solemn word for yourself and myself? There is no way, my friend, for the Christian to go but forward. Wherever you are, whatever mire you may find yourself in, go forward. Don't go back. Because once you start going back, the Lord alone knows where that will stop. Because if you put your hand to the plow and draw back, you are not fit for the kingdom of God. And Elisha knows it. God has asked me to do this, he says, and so I will continue with it, and I will do it. Elijah puts another test to him. He says in verse 9, just after they crossed the Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Now I have no doubt, my friend, that there is love in that as well. Elijah knows that his time has come to enter rest, and he cannot but feel sorry for this man, or his heart goes out to him. 
And he says to him, finally, he says, ask, he says, anything, or ask what I can do for you before I be taken away from you. But again, I cannot help but feel that there's a test in there. There's a test inside it. It reminds me of what the Lord said to Solomon when he came to him in a dream, in a dream one night when he was a young man. And God said to him, Solomon, ask. Ask of me whatever your heart would desire. And you remember that Solomon had the grace and the wisdom to ask God for wisdom. Not riches or long life. And the Lord commended him in that. Solomon asked for strength to go in and out amongst this people. And God gave him that because he knew he was not adequate to meet the task. And I feel that that test is inside these words. Ask me what I shall do for you before I be taken away from thee. And how does Elisha respond? He responds conscious of his own uselessness. Conscious of his frailty and weakness. And he says, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now the double portion refers... Now there's a little bit of controversy over this and I wouldn't want to be dogmatic over it. It is perhaps possible to take it two ways, but I strongly incline and would strongly urge you to incline to take it this way. That the double portion refers to the right of the firstborn in Israel, which we find in Deuteronomy. One of the later chapters of that book, it speaks of the firstborn's portion. Now the firstborn in the family had a right to the double portion, to the best part, more than any of the other sons were to receive. And Elisha is, as it were, saying to Elijah, Elijah, I have little or no strength, and you are devolving on me more than you are devolving on others, or the Lord is devolving more on me than on the rest of the sons of the prophets. Give me a double portion of your spirit. I am not as zealous as you are. I am not as courageous as you are. I am not as strong in battle as you are. Give me a double portion of what you have. And Elijah says, you have asked a hard thing. And why does he say that? Because it's not in his power to give it. There were many things perhaps that Elijah could have done for Elisha, but that is one thing that he cannot do. That lies with God alone. And Elisha knows it lies with God alone. But Elijah said to him, you have asked a hard thing, verse 10. Nevertheless, if you see me taken from thee, if I am visible to you, and if you see me as I make my way into heaven, it shall be so, and your request is granted. But if not, it shall not be so. And of course you know the sequel, that Elisha saw it, and a double portion of the spirit of Elijah rested on Elisha. Now notice, my friends, Elisha passed the test. If Elijah wanted to know one last time what kind of the man this was, he had his answer. And I believe Elijah ascended more happily into heaven, knowing the one he had left behind on the earth. Did Elisha ask for anything? Did he ask for riches or long life or anything like that? No, he says, just give me a double portion of your spirit, because I have nothing myself. And if you want to do anything in the kingdom of God, as a Christian, or as a worker in Christ's kingdom in any single capacity. It must be absolutely conscious of your own nothingness. Let there be no pride, no vanity, but a constant sense of emptiness and the need for the Lord to give you what he has given to others before you.
Ah, my friend, people who are full of themselves or full of pride do nothing in the kingdom of God except perhaps bring it into disrepute. The Lord wants empty vessels filled with his own spirit. And that's it. There is no room in a man for self and for God. One has to go for the other to come in. And Elijah has one last confirmation that that is so. Grant me a double portion because I need it. The work is too great for me. Now, the two of them cross the Jordan and they walk on. And by this time, it's night time. And the sun is going down. And darkness is already just beginning to envelop the land. And as they're walking and as they're talking, with the sun descending, suddenly there's a whirlwind and a bright fire appears, we believe, in heaven itself. And the fire makes its way towards the two prophets. And as it comes, Elisha can clearly discern that it is in the form of a chariot, or horses and a chariot. In fact, there is a train of them, a succession of them, chariots and horses of fire. And the mighty procession is a burning, blazing one. Perhaps Elisha can hardly look at it, but the whirlwind seems to separate between himself and Elijah. Elijah's companion is caught away from him by the edge of the whirlwind, and he moves into the chariot of fire. The chariot passes by and ascends again into heaven, and Elijah disappears from the sight of Elisha. He has never seen anything like that before, and he never saw anything like that again. God took Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam. We don't know how he took him, but it's written often that he was not, for God took him. And Elijah rose into heaven in a chariot of fire, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself ascended in a cloud into heaven. Other than that, there is no record of anyone being raised and being removed in this mysterious way. Now then, first of all, what is the chariot of fire? Well, allow the scripture to answer the question for you. In the 68th Psalm, we have a picture of God on top of Mount Sinai in the presence of thousands of angels. Galatians 3 tells us that he was in the midst of angels on Mount Sinai, and so does Hebrews. But these angels in Psalm 68 are called the chariots of God. God's chariots are 20,000. So clearly the angels of God that surrounded his presence on Mount Sinai had the form of horses and chariots. They were indeed an armed host like men of war guarding and keeping the people of God. In the second place, just go forward a couple of chapters in your Bible to the sixth chapter of Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 6 and <coughs> verse 17. Now the people of God were surrounded by the enemy here. And Elisha's servant was afraid. But Elisha prayed, verse 17 of 2 Kings 6, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. 
And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around about Elisha. Now there you have the same thing again. The angels of the Lord encompassing the people of God. They are like men of war. The angels appear as fighters, circling and protecting the people of God. But they are chariots of fire. What does that refer to? Well, the name seraphim, which is one order of angel, means the burning ones. The burning ones. And the higher the angel, the more exalted the angel, the more he burns. That refers to his holiness, to his glory, and to his grandeur. The archangels, Michael and Gabriel, they are the most exalted and the most burning and the most bright and blazing of all. There was none, I refer to this in a prayer meeting, once there was none as bright as Lucifer himself, who was the highest of all the angels. His name, Lucifer, meant the morning star. He was as bright as that. He blazed and he burned until he fell from heaven in his pride and rebellion and took a third of the angels with him. But still there are exalted burning ones. And these burning angels form the chariot, or they appear like a chariot, one after another. God makes his angels spirits. He makes them a flame of fire. They appear like a chariot, one angel after another, like a mighty chariot coming down. You could call them an armed escort to take this great hero of God who has been more than a conqueror, to take him into the place that belongs to those who are more than conquerors. The chariot comes down with a whirlwind, and Elijah is taken up by the angels into the presence of God. We're told in the New Testament that the angels took Lazarus into Abraham's bosom. And I believe that every single child of God will be conscious at the moment of their death of angels taking them into the presence of God. You will be conscious, Christian friend, at death of the angels escorting you into the holy of holies in heaven itself, into the very presence of God. It is the angel's mission to do that. And Elisha sees it here, and Elijah sees it. I don't know, but that there isn't actually something else in it. Um, Psalm 18 tells us something unusual, that God rides upon a cherub. Now, listen to that. God rides upon a cherub, or the cherubim. Now, they are an order of angels, and God rides upon them. Now, I wonder if the Lord himself came down on this chariot. If the angels formed a chariot, and if Psalm 18 tells us that God rides upon a chariot, is it not possible that the Lord himself came down to receive this man along with the angels? He rides upon a cherub and took him home. Remember, after all, this is an unusual event. It is not like the death of any other Christian. There's only one other that we can compare with it, and that was Enoch, who ascended into heaven. And remember what's written about him. It says that he was not, for God took him. No, God took him. What does that mean? I wonder again if there was an in, a chariot of angels upon which God himself rode in the second person 
and honored these great and holy men of God by taking him in his own presence and with the presence of angels right into heaven. The great mediator, the son of God who was to become man, if he himself was present in the chariot, why not if he rides upon a cherub? After all, you'll notice that Elijah went up in a whirlwind. He went up in a whirlwind with, can we say, God himself in the chariot with him. In any case, what a translation and what a removal from one place to the next. The man of fire departs in a fire. The fiery prophet goes out in a fire and in a whirlwind. And how appropriate that is. God took him in the twinkling of an eye, just like that. This mortality must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption. And just in the twinkling of an eye, Elijah's body is transformed. Everything about him is transformed. And he's brought into the presence of God in heaven. What a foretaste of the great rapture itself when Christ shall come. And he shall come at the sound of the archangel, at the voice of a trumpet. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then those who are alive shall be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. And they themselves will change just like that. In the twinkling of an eye, they'll change. Their bodies will change. New bodies, gloriously reformed and souls made holy and brought into the presence of God. That's a pledge and a foretaste of it. And I remind you of that today. It's interesting that Enoch was taken to heaven bodily when people denied the resurrection. Elijah was taken to heaven bodily in the midst of an apostasy. And the Lord Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven. The last proof that we have of the fact of these things. You'll never see it until the end of the world comes. But you're to believe it. And I urge you to believe it. I urge you to believe it before the time runs out for you. That there is a life to come. That there is a heaven and that there's a hell. Prepare for it, my friend. Prepare for heaven before you be cast down into hell. Now, <coughs> can I just say again in connection with that, um, Elijah prayed eight years before this that he wouldn't die. He lay down under a juniper tree in a depression and he said, it is enough, take away my life. And the Lord didn't answer his prayer. And who knows, but that like Jonah, maybe he was angry that the Lord didn't answer his prayer. Or didn't answer it the way he wanted. Jonah said, God said to Jonah, Dost thou well to be angry? And Jonah said to him, Yes, I do well to be angry. And maybe Elijah was angry as he left the juniper tree that he was still alive. God never says no except in order to bless you. He never says no except to bless you. If God says to you, child of God, no, it's to give you something better. The man who asked to die was the man who never saw death at all. How about that? For you receive not because you ask amiss. The Lord gave him something better, something far better, something beyond his wildest dreams or expectation, that he would be preserved from seeing death. So don't despair when the Lord says no. Because he has something to give you with his other hand. Something far better than what you in your folly asked for. I'm thankful that the Lord never gave me many things I asked for. Very, very thankful that he never gave me many other things I asked for. 
And this name it and claim it theology that's over on the other side of the water, and if there, I'm sure it's here, where you just name what you like and God gives it to you. What a piece of nonsense that is. Are you as almighty and as wise as God himself? Do you know everything that's good for you? No. Many's a time we ask and ask amiss and the Lord says no. And bless the Lord that he says no. He has something better to give instead of what we asked for in our foolishness. What's the aftermath? Well, Elisha begins to mourn in verse 12. He has seen an awesome sight. But he cries out and he says, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. He cries and he mourns because he has lost the man he loved. And he has seen the great champion of God's people gone to heaven. And he feels that the whole cause is so much the poorer and he is so much the poorer my father he says my father and not only my father but the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof you Elijah were the real defense of this nation it wasn't Ahab and his mighty horses it wasn't King Amaziah and his pride it was you Elijah who preserved us and kept us from much worse than we had your prayers your striving with God and your life of obedience that was our chariot and that was our defense and that was our shield have you ever felt that about a person who went to glory have you ever felt that that with that person gone the defenses were down and the walls were broken down that is how you yourself should live so that when you die people will say the chariot of Israel and the horsemen are off will people mourn yourself when you're gone I don't say live so that people will think that of you, but that's what your life ought to be. A life like that. Missed when you're gone. And there are people, and I wonder sometimes if they're as noticed as they ought to be in the church, who are the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Those who are putting a wall around about us with their prayers, who have kept us from going to utter rack and ruin and desolation. And God is removing them. We pray God that he will raise others in their place before we see the defense is gone and gone completely. And Elisha can only cry and say, what can we do without you? My father, my father personally, and the chariot of the church of Israel and the horsemen thereof. It seems sometimes that when some people go, the loss is absolutely irreparable. There's a breach in the wall that the enemy will avail himself of all too easily. But, but, Elijah sees something fluttering down in the wind. He not only sees Elijah go, he sees the mantle fall. It's the only thing Elijah leaves behind, the mantle, and it falls to the ground at Elijah's feet, at Elisha's feet. And along with that fallen mantle at his feet, there is the recognition in his mind, I saw him go. I saw the chariot. God revealed to me the chariot which he could have kept hidden. And I saw my father ascend into heaven in the chariot of angels. What was that? But God saying to him, weak as you are, Elisha, pick up the mantle, 
put it on your shoulder. I will go with you. My work will continue and my work will go on. And is that not God's message to yourself? To do what you can with the mantle and with the power that God can give you through prayer and through supplication. Elisha is strengthened by it and he rolls up the mantle and turns it into a kind of rod and he strikes the waters of the Jordan and he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he doesn't say it in doubt, he says it in faith. And the moment he says it, the waters split open and Elisha crosses over and the sons of the prophet said to him, the spirit of Elijah doth rest upon Elisha. As much as to say, Elijah has gone, but God is still here. Ah, my friend, God is indeed still here. And God is offering that self-same power to us in the gospel. Turn to be like Elijah and Elisha, men and women of prayer, of obedience, and zeal towards God. That will make a difference. No substitute will. May the Lord bless these thoughts in his word. Let us pray. Eternal One, we pray thee to grant us an anticipation for that day when the souls of believers shall be made perfect in holiness. And that day later when their bodies will be raised and conformed to the image of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that there, will be, there shall be those alive in that day whose own bodies shall be gloriously transformed. We pray that thou would make us all true men and women of thine own. Help us to live our lives for thee, for thy sake and for thy glory. For Christ's sake, amen.